0: Back in Acts chapter 19, Uh, we're going to get a running start into our passage this morning. Uh, The main passage uh, begins in verse 21. We're going to back up a few verses to verse 18, and then we will read through the end of this chapter, verse 41. Before we come to the Lord's word for us today, let us go to the Lord and ask him to bless the reading and hearing of his word. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, now as we hear your word, fill us with your spirit. Soften our hearts that we may delight in your presence. Sharpen our minds that we may discern your truth. Shape our wills that we may desire your ways. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Beginning in verse 18 of chapter 19, dearly beloved, hear the word of the Lord, it is written. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it to be found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, He himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Eris who were friends of his sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion. And most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis? and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open. There are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. A predictable pattern emerges as Paul continues his missionary journeys. Here is the pattern. The gospel is proclaimed. Hearts are pierced, bringing about repentance and faith. And from this repentance and faith, lives are transformed. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing. True faith creates in people a new identity and new affections, and their living is drastically affected. The old life is done away with, a new life in Jesus Christ is embraced and lived out. New habits are formed, new priorities take precedence in their lives as the glory of God and the hope of salvation becomes preeminent over all things. This is the pattern of rebirth, of true awakening. As J.I. Packer identifies, there are 10 steps in the pattern of awakening or revival in a community. Number one, God comes down. Number two, God's word pierces. Number three, man's sin is seen. Number four, Christ's cross is valued. Number five, change goes deep. Number six, love breaks out. Number seven, joy fills hearts. Number eight, each church becomes itself. Becomes, that is, the people of the divine presence in in an experiential, as distinct from, merely notional sense. Number nine, the lost are found. But there is one more step in this pattern of awakening and revival. Number 10, according to Packer, Satan keeps pace. Satan keeps pace. And this is what we have seen throughout Acts. The transformation caused by the proclamation of the gospel creates disturbances in the surrounding society. This is part of the predictable pattern. We've seen it in Paul's two previous missionary journeys. We've seen it happen with both Jewish and Gentile communities. We have seen it prominently in places like Philippi and Thessalonica. And we've seen in both of those places that people who remain in darkness don't like for their idols to be criticized, they don't like for their worldview to be challenged, they don't like their wallets to be negatively impacted. Remember, Paul and his companions had been accused of turning the world upside down. So Christians are resented for no longer living according to the status quo, for no longer going with the downward flow of society, and people were not quiet about their resentment. They got riled up, and this led to rioting. It led to Christians being detained, and imprisoned, and beaten. It led to disciples being stoned and expelled from cities. And here we are in another city where the gospel has had wonderful success with the exact same result. Transformed lives, riled up, resentful non-believers who create a riot. Just when Paul had resolved to leave Ephesus and move on because ministry there had been so successful, his work was done, this happened. Verse 23, about that same time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way, that is, the church. Different city, different idols, same result. Why? Because the gospel is the one thing that threatens Satan's kingdom in this world. Anywhere the gospel is preached boldly, faithfully, broadly, and is believed and lived out, it will stir up opposition. Awakening was breaking out in Ephesus, and as J.I. Packer noted, where awakening and revival occur, Satan keeps pace. And while we shouldn't be praying for our faith to produce opposition, we should be seeking to follow Christ in such a way that the powers of darkness feel threatened. We should recognize then that if we live out our faith, opposition is a real possibility. The New Testament tells us to expect it. Beloved, Peter says, do not be surprised at the fiery trial." Peter tells us to rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings and to not be ashamed, but to glorify God through them. So if we are going to work and pray for awakening in our land, and I hope we are, if we are going to work and pray for revival, then we better anticipate opposition and be fortified for the fallout. We don't want to be walking around oblivious to the possibility left completely unguarded. We want to have thought biblically about what we are to do and to be in order that we can respond in faith and hope and love. But rather than having an expect, but other than having an expectation that opposition could come, how, how are we to prepare ourselves? How are we to prepare ourselves for the fallout? We don't just need to have a strategy for evangelism. Pastor John preached on that a few weeks ago. We better also have a strategy for discipleship in the midst of opposition. And this passage provides some very helpful insights. I want to highlight just three this morning. This isn't an exhaustive list, but this is what we find here in Acts. Three things. Here they are. Number one, we need to understand the weapons of wickedness. We need to understand the weapons of wickedness. Second, we need to curb our critiques and criticisms. We need to curb our critiques and criticisms. Third, we need to find peace in providence. We need to find peace in providence. So first, we need to understand the weapons of wickedness. It always helps to know what weapons your enemy is fighting with in order that you can build a proper defense. You don't want to come to the front line of a battle expecting a boxing match and be staring down the barrel of a 50 caliber gun. You don't want to stroll to the line ready to defend against a sword when your enemy is shooting missiles. We need to know what is in the arsenal of the evil one. And even before that, it would do us well to begin by remembering that the evil one is a father of lies who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Knowing that the character of the kingdom of darkness gives us a clue about the tools of its tyranny. There are at least three weapons we find used here in this passage. These are found in verses 23 through 27. We're following Paul's resolution. We find the rallying of resentment led by Demetrius. Verse 24 tells us that Demetrius was a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis. And Demetrius Demetrius, gathered all of his fellow craftsmen. This is a silversmith guild. These guys were making big money selling these idols, but their sales had dipped since Paul came in preaching Christ and him crucified. And now, all of a sudden, people were coming to Christ, which meant they were putting away all of these idols. They were no longer participating in that part of the economy. They didn't want what the craftsmen were selling. We would be wise, by the way, to follow suit by refusing to participate in the economy of the secular cult today. Anyhow, this was the problem in Ephesus. All those who had become wealthy off of this idolatry and immorality had their bottom lines hit by the transformation caused by the gospel. But listen to what Demetrius says in verse 27 as he forms a resistance against the Christians. Listen to what he says. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence. Demetrius laid out three issues. Their trade would lose its good name, their temple its prestige, and their goddess, her divine majesty. The real issue is an economic one, but his argument was cloaked in religious zeal. Very clever. But all of this is about arousing fear. It's all about arousing fear. The Christians were painted as dangerous Dangerous because they were threatening the Ephesians' way of life, threatening what they cherish, threatening their gods and goddesses. And we've heard arguments like this recently. The Christians are threatening freedom, are working to remove rights, are endangering women, are harming members of society by disrespecting them, are seeking to undermine our democracy. It's a, it's a means to vilify and denigrate Christians to limit their influence. But notice what else is in the arsenal of the evil one. Demetrius doesn't, uh, Demetrius doesn't stop at painting Christians as dangerous. He also adds at the end of this little speech that all of Asia in the whole world worship Artemis. Did you catch that? all of Asia and the whole world, he claims, worships this goddess. Obviously, this is a slight exaggeration. Artemis was not worshipped by the whole world, nor even by all of Asia. But the purpose of this remark was to put social pressure on and belittle those who don't worship Artemis. So it wasn't just fear that uh, Demetrius Demetrius was trying to instill, he was also trying to intimidate and isolate all those who held different beliefs. It was meant to discourage Christians and cast them as weird, ignorant, backwards, hateful, standing against what everyone else understood as common sensical the pressure is, to, is meant to make non-Christians not only not want to be a Christian, but to despise Christians, and it's meant to make Christians feel shameful and alone. This tactic is still very much present today. As recently as last month, the United States Assistant Secretary of Health, who is a transgendered woman, a biological male claiming to be a woman, stated, and I quote, there is no argument among medical professionals. There is no argument among medical professionals about the value and the importance of gender-affirming care for children. This is what a high-ranking official in the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services is claiming. No doctor worth their salt questions transgenderism in children, but actively supports it and encourages it. We're talking about giving children puberty blockers and irreversible sex change surgeries, and we are told that there is no debate there. Everyone everyone agrees on this issue. This is the tactic of the kingdom of darkness. And we've seen this surrounding all major moral and worldview issues that face our culture today. Gender identity, abortion, human sexuality, women's rights, evolution, objective truth. This is what the kingdom of darkness wants you to believe. You are all alone in your belief. You are all alone in your belief. Everyone else believes that gender is a social construct and has no grounding in biological reality. Everyone else believes that abortion is a social good and is a right women are entitled to have. Everyone else believes that nothing is morally wrong with any form of sex between consenting adults. Everyone else believes that there is no differences between the sexes. Everyone else believes in macroevolution. Everyone else believes truth is relative. You are all alone if you think differently. You are all alone because your system of belief is unreasonable. It is ignorant. It is outdated. And not only that, it is hateful, bigoted, sexist, homophobic, and tyrannical. Satan knows Satan knows that we are a people made by God to be social creatures. We don't want to be all alone. We don't want to be oddballs. We want to be socially acceptable and agreeable. So Satan repeats this lie to us again and again. If you are going to be insistent in your beliefs, then you will be all alone. You will be isolated you will be thought ill of. But even if you are the only one, it is better to live in accordance with God's word than to follow the popular belief of the world. The path is wide that leads to destruction. You can go with the flow. You can go along and get along. That road is leading right to hell. Scripture calls us to stand strong against the flow but also know that you are not alone. Here's the reality. Demetrius claimed that everyone worshiped Artemis in Asia and even in the whole world. And perhaps the Christians in Ephesus felt that to be true. He wanted them to believe that to be true. It only took a few hundred years though, about 300 years. And no one, Worshipped Artemis. No one. Christian influence changed the culture. And that didn't mean that everyone became Christian. That wasn't it at all. But their influence did topple idol worship in the Greco Roman world. 300 years later, no one worshiped Artemis. And never again. Who today is worshiping Artemis? The great. Artemis of the Ephesians is on the ash heap of history, but how many worship Jesus Christ? So be encouraged, dearly beloved. If we are to fortify ourselves against the tactic of evil, this tactic of evil, then we must be ready to shield ourselves from these lies. We must refuse to allow them to sway us. We must be ready to stand alone if necessary, but I pray that we would never truly be alone. I pray that we would commit ourselves to standing together as a people, regardless of the pressure, regardless of the cost, to together shine the light of Jesus Christ, to dispel the lies, and to reveal the love of God and the glory of God to demonstrate by our own common convictions and our unified witness that Christianity is both reasonable and loving and that we will not be bullied or intimidated into yielding to so-called popular beliefs. And it could be that Christians it could be that Christians don't merely face social ostracism and slander regardless of how loving they are. Christians might also face physical repercussions for standing firm in the faith. Again, where God's kingdom advances, Satan will seek to keep pace. We've already seen in Acts Christians being beaten, imprisoned, and even martyred for their faith. In this passage, two Christians, Gaius and Aristarchus, are detained and drugged into the amphitheater in the middle of this riot. This is not a threat we often face in the United States, but that is not to say it will always be that way. Certainly, the world around us is growing more and more hostile to the Christian faith. If we are to be fortified against the schemes of the evil one, then we need to be aware of the tactics of the kingdom of darkness. Not only verbal assaults, but physical as well. And we should remember the words of our Savior and Lord, blessed are those who are persecuted But we must also be careful not to give the evil one extra ammo. And this passage shows us that another way for us to be fortified against the fallout is to curb our critiques and criticisms. Another way to say that is to be disciplined in expressing your disapprovals and disagreements. Let me explain what I mean by this. As Christians, we should love peace. We are a people of peace peace. We should be seeking peace. God's word commands this of us in Hebrews 12, 14. Strive for peace with everyone and for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Live holy lives. Be holy as God is holy. Give witness to your identity in Jesus Christ. And you can do this. You should be doing this without rubbing it in people's faces. Strive for peace. Not only a lack of conflict, but harmony with others. Romans 12, 18, if possible. So far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. You don't always have to tell everyone else that they have wrong beliefs. You don't have to share every critique and criticism you have of the secular world. Not every hill is a hill to die on. Learn to hold peace your tongue. Proverbs tells us that there is wisdom in being silent. Whoever restrains his lips is prudent. If you are constantly sharing your right views with everyone, then not only will your righteousness appear to be arrogance, but you will be instigating disruption with little or no chance of redemption. People don't come to faith by our arguments, but by God's word being read and studied. This means we shouldn't be constantly looking for a fight. There are plenty of fights to be had, but we need to practice self-control and not be triggered by every talking head on the news, every troll on social media, every person in our workplace who mouths off about every social issue. Now, This doesn't mean that we aren't to be bold to proclaim and live out the gospel. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't give a reasonable defense of the faith if asked. It doesn't mean that we don't work for righteousness in ourselves and in our culture. But we should be doing it in a way that we are also seeking to live at peace with all people. It takes wisdom, incredible wisdom. And we see the wisdom here in Acts 19. Look at what happens once this riot begins. Even though Paul is ready to rush into the midst of everything, there were disciples there holding him back. Look at what the very next verse says, verse 32. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. This assembly was no place to try to reason with anyone as Paul had been doing in his evangelism. This wasn't an assembly that had any logic to it. We're told that most of them didn't even know why they were there. They were just following the crowd. Everyone else was riled up. Everyone else was heading into the amphitheater. This is what following the crowd looks like, by the way. Sheer madness. The wise thing to do here... Is to hold your tongue. This was not a hill to die on, trying to defend Christianity against the attacks made by the silversmith guild, masking itself as the cult of Artemis. There were, there would be hills to die on in Ephesus. This wasn't one of them. Another thing we see in this passage is that the Christians hadn't even instigated anything in Ephesus, they were simply living faithfully. And this is really, really, really important. Later, someone would get up and testify that the Christians were not guilty of anything, that they were neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. Now, that wasn't entirely correct. The Christians would not have failed to say that Artemis was no god. She was a demon. And they were not giving her any honor or glory. They weren't going to the temple. They weren't participating in cultic activities, which included temple prostitution. Artemis wasn't worthy of their affections, and they weren't giving them to her. So according to those who worship this demon, the Christians were robbing her of the honor her devotees thought she was due. This is what the word sacrilegious means. It means temple robbers. It doesn't mean that Christians were being accused of stealing anything from the temple. That isn't it. Worship is what happens in the temple. It's about stealing the worship due to a God. We should be thinking about that in terms of our God, the one true God. It means that if you are putting your affection somewhere else, if you are worshiping something else, if you are devoted to someone else, then you are robbing God of what he is due that is true sacrilege. They're called blasphemers. It means to speak profanely of sacred things. Do you think the Christians had kind words for Artemis? I doubt it. I'm positive that they would not have hesitated if asked what they thought of Artemis, that they would have declared her to be what she was, a demon. Now, Christians are called to be bold, we are not to be timid. God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and what else? Self control. So notice this, notice this. The city clerk was able to say with all honesty that the Christians were not were not sacrilegious or blasphemers because they hadn't been out in the streets openly blaspheming artemis they weren't doing that the reality was that they didn't need to they didn't need to go into the marketplace and openly declare all they thought about artemis and those who worshiped her they didn't need to go out and pick fights and get into intellectual arguments with those who gave homage to artemis they didn't need to go out with picket signs and stand in front of the temple they didn't need to become activists They had stopped participating in anything related to Artemis. They weren't giving the cult their money, their time, their attention, their devotion, their worship. And they were undoubtedly proclaiming that there is only one true God Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the creator of heaven and earth, the ruler of all things, the redeemer of sinners. They were doing what they were called to do, they were living transformed lives. They had repented of their sins. They were proclaiming the gospel. And the world had taken notice. This is what caused this disruption. There are times in this modern age, it seems to me, when we Christians are shooting ourselves in the foot by instigating conflict in our culture. It would do Christians well to use more wisdom about how to promote faith in the one true God. We've seen in recent history people who we perhaps viewed as right in their beliefs who were wrong in how they went about articulating them and instituting them. So how about this? How about rather than picking fights, we start inviting people to Bible studies and to worship? People aren't going to be transformed by our arguments but by the word of God. This is how awakenings begin. This is how revivals break out. Open God's word to people and let God work his power. So beloved, be defiant. Stand against the crowd certainly Be out sharing your faith and speaking the truth in love, even if it comes with persecution. The Apostle Paul says this to the Thessalonians. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. But then Paul says this, but we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. We need to do less attacking people for their sin and pagan worldview and do more presenting people with the love of God in Jesus Christ. So we fortify ourselves against the fallout by understanding the weapons of wickedness, by curbing our critiques and criticisms. Finally, briefly, we fortify ourselves by finding peace in providence by finding peace and providence. Another way to say this is be confident that the Lord is in control. Satisfy yourself in the Lord's sovereignty. Delight yourself in his dominion. We're reminded here that God holds the hearts of all those in positions of authority. They are there because he placed them there, and he can, and he does use them to accomplish his good purposes. Who is it that brings calm and reason into the riot? It's the town clerk. The town clerk steps in here, quiets the crowd, and reigns on their riot parade, telling them that if there are legal, that there are legal processes that need to be followed if they have an issue. If they had a grievance, then they could take it to the provincial court, or they could take it to the town assembly. But what they couldn't do was continue to riot. If they did, the clerk threatens that they were running the risk of being charged with an insurrection. It wasn't Paul and the Christians in Ephesus who were determined to be the true threat. But what we see here is that even in the midst of what seemed to be absolute chaos and confusion, God was in control. God, who is working all things for his glory. God saw it fit to restore order even through an unbeliever. There will be times when it seems like all the world is against us. Times when there seems to be no plausible means of victory or even escape. But God is our rock and our redeemer. He is a strong fortress, and we need to rely on him. We need to trust that he is always in control, that he is working all things together for good for those who love him, even when it seems otherwise. I believe we have seen this in these past few days. The curse of Roe v. Wade has plagued this country for nearly 50 years. And as we moved as a culture into a place where we can clearly say that America is a post Christian nation, we seem to be moving further and further away from the possibility that we would ever see the end to abortion. But even in a post-Christian nation, God can and does act in mighty ways. How is it that one president could get the opportunity to put three justices on the Supreme Court for this to happen? And how was it that these three justices would have the courage to overturn a case that was declared gospel truth in this nation? Was it a chance? I don't think so. I pray that these past few days gives us faith that God is at work. The battle's raging. Let's make sure we have our armor on, that we are properly fortified. And let's pray for revival to break out. And let's be ready for the opposition that will inevitably follow. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that you give us your holy, inerrant, infallible word. And your word reveals to us these truths of history these patterns that we can look at and understand. And Lord, we pray that this same pattern would happen here in this place. in Ouachita Parish in Louisiana, across our entire nation, Lord, we pray for revival to break out. We pray for awakening to happen. We pray that people would return to your word, that it would pierce their hearts, that they would be convicted of their sin, that they would turn to you to find salvation in Jesus Christ. And Lord, we're going to be ready. We're going to be ready when Satan tries to keep pace. Lord, help us to put on our armor and to respond to all of the attacks of the evil one with faith, hope, and love that all people might see your glory. For we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. In response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, let us stand and affirm what we believe. We are once again using the Scots Confession. Dearly beloved, in whom do you believe?